Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. According to a Gallup study, 64% of Americans believe they could not forgive their spouse for having an extramarital affair. And 62% of Americans say they would leave the marriage. And you don't have to be married, obviously, for this to be a concern. In an exclusive relationship, we also expect commitment and fidelity. And when this expectation is violated, what do you do? What would you do? Or what did you do? Because for many of us, we've been in this situation, whether we were dating or married, and we've had to make that decision. Do I stick it out as we try to repair the damage that's been done? Or do I give up on the relationship and just move on? According to the Gallup study, a majority of Americans state they couldn't forgive and move on. But what about if we go to couples counseling? Obviously, that's one of the reasons marital therapy exists is to help couples navigate challenges and betrayals and circumstances that they don't think they could move through together without some help. Can marital therapy save the day and save the marriage? What does the research say about couples who do try to salvage the marriage with a psychotherapist's help? According to a 2014 study by Marin, Christensen, and Atkins, when couples were followed five years post-marital therapy, some of these couples had experienced betrayal, others hadn't. When we compared the two groups, 53% of infidelity couples were divorced by five years post-therapy, compared to only 23% of non-infidelity couples. According to the researchers, this suggests that for those couples who have experienced infidelity and tried to work it out through therapy, they're still three times more likely to divorce than those couples who came to therapy for other reasons. But here's a little good news. The researchers found, and I quote, couples who remained married reported an increase in relationship satisfaction over time, regardless of infidelity status, end quote. This suggests that therapy was effective and helped them increase their marital satisfaction. So yes, some couples will in fact go to therapy after infidelity and still divorce. But for those who do go to therapy and do remain together, these couples, quote, continue to improve and remain indistinguishable from their non-infidelity counterparts, end quote. So to further delve into this topic and discuss ways that couples can rebuild trust and intimacy in their relationships after betrayal, Jennifer Lair, licensed marriage and family therapist, joins us today. And here's a little more information on Jennifer. Jennifer Lair is on a mission to create a world filled with connection instead of conflict. She specializes in educating couples on the relationship skills they need to build a solid, connected, and loving partnership. As a marriage and family therapist for nearly 20 years, she uses her knowledge and advanced training in many couples' modalities to help others succeed in their marriage. 
Jennifer is the founder of WeConcile, a revolutionary do-it-yourself online educational application that helps couples improve trust, intimacy, safety, and connection through established relationship science. My interview with Jennifer Lair is up next. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns. We'll target limiting beliefs and thought patterns. We'll learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood. We'll identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals and we'll together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So we're going to talk today about something that's pretty dicey, whether or not we ever can rebuild trust and intimacy once a betrayal has occurred. I'm thinking of a listener who may have, I mean, I have my community, but then I'm also thinking of someone who may have found this episode looking for just that. They've been through infidelity. They are at this breaking point in their marriage or their relationship, and they're overwhelmed. It's a tsunami of emotions and feelings and uncertainty and confusion. And I'm sure they're wrestling with the notion of, I've invested so much. There was so much good stuff here, but can I ever let go of that memory of this horrid betrayal. So yeah, talk to us a little bit about the steps, therapeutically speaking, and maybe even any of the personal examples with your clients you work with. What sort of strategies have worked for them? Well, the first step is, do they both want to rebuild the relationship? Um, And because it will be a new relationship when they're done. It won't be the same one they had before. It's, It's that big of a reconstruction. You want to know if the person who betrayed do they really get the pain, not just the pain they caused, but are they feeling pain themselves for the pain they caused? So that is really important that the person who did the betrayal it has remorse and is able to express it. So it, we have to look at both sides of the couple. So the, on the betrayer's side, that person has to be willing to experience remorse and express that remorse and take steps to ensure the betrayal will never happen again because the betrayee will never trust unless they know for sure this can't happen again. And that doesn't happen unless there's change. Can this person speak to their sorrow over having caused someone they love pain? Mm. And how do they ensure that this won't happen again? What I run into a lot is the person who did the betrayal is a little defensive. They might have a lot of feelings, but there's so much shame about what they did that they are defensive and they don't want to have to go, they don't want to have to go through it blow by blow and explain what happened, which is a way of how the other person feels safe. They want to know, well, what happened? Exactly what happened? Not always, but they often want to know the details. And the person who betrayed doesn't want to share that and has shame over it. So they can get defensive instead of being willing to basically fall, fall on their sword over and over and say how, how much they hurt that they hurt their partner. So that's one big piece, getting through that. Now, the other part, is, of course, is the person who's been betrayed. Do they want to trust again? Right. 
Are they using this to punish their partner? Mm. They have to be clear, okay, this is someone I want to trust, even if I don't trust them now. Yeah. And they have to be, they have to know they're, uh, that they're, they're going to eventually be willing to forgive. If they say, I'm never forgiving you for this, then we've sort of hit a dead end. Yeah. So there has to be openness on both, both sides for that. Another important thing is, and this doesn't come up right away, I don't think usually, because this is difficult for the person who's been betrayed, but sometimes the betrayal isn't out of a personal issue, let's say sex addiction, but out of a relational issue where things were uh, stressed, they weren't attached, and the person strayed because there were relational problems. That's harder to look at when you're a victim and betrayed because you feel like you've been victimized and you're being asked to take responsibility for some of what was done to you. So that can be problematic also because often, but not always, the betrayal comes out of a relationship problem. Right. So needing to look at all that. Oh, there's so much there. Uh, Yeah. Speaking to that last point you make, in a marriage, and of course, from the family systems literature, we look at the systemic realities and no action is happening in a vacuum. There's always a push and pull. There's an action and a response. And that is so dicey because if you've been betrayed, you probably are not really very open to looking at maybe the small little deterioration of the relationship that partly was you. There's two in this relationship. And no, the result of someone stepping out and the infidelity is not directly your fault, but there was a marriage breakdown that both parties participated in. I'm sure that's very hard. I I just, I put myself in that position. I can't imagine. And of course, when you're on the other end of something and something that I share with my community is date your spouse, that kind of energy to try to always put that relationship as the priority in your life, which it should be. And yet with kids and with financial pressures and maybe a job move and all those realities can tear away at even the strongest marriage and then can lead to something like this. And yeah, for you to work with couples, trying to help them understand the systemic realities that there were factors from both parties that played into it. That sounds really harsh when I say it, but it's, it's, it's a fact, isn't it? It is. It's a fact that, and it is, I mean, there are cases where it's stemmed out of a certain party might, let's just say someone has a sexual addiction, addictive personality, but the other partner may not have been conscious, but some part was aware that there was a certain amount of distance in their relationship because Mm -hmm. when you're with an, if you're with someone with that kind of thing there, it's just not as close as if it's with someone who's fully available. So, you know, there's a blind eye that gets turned a bit sometimes. And I'm thinking someone may have entered a marriage with someone who had that distance and maybe because of their own childhood stuff, that distance felt normal. And so they weren't as much attuned to that as they could have been perhaps if they'd not had that experience in in their childhood. So again, it's, it's, it's very delicate. Right. They actually don't know what's possible in a relationship. I mean, I think back to some of my earlier relationships, I didn't know what was possible, you know, and you, you put up with things that you shouldn't because you don't know better. 
And I love the point you made earlier. So let's speak to this a little bit more about it will be a brand new relationship. And I have heard anecdotally from people who've been through an infidelity and maybe even separated for a time that the relationship that they rebuilt was stronger and better and more honest and more intimate and more authentic than the first relationship. But wow, that's a rough way to get to a better relationship. It's a really rough way to get to a better relationship. And it is one of the ways to get to a better relationship. You know, hopefully people don't have to get that far into the breakdown. I mean, that you know, sometimes you go all the way down to the bottom before you start coming back up. I would call right. infidelity a bottom. Mm. And other people go, you know, partway down. They're fighting all the time. And then they, they're like, okay, this isn't working. And they do something to get help and make changes. It's just a different path. Life does its thing to all of us. So we have to be so intentional. And I'm sure that that's the sort of thing that your couples learn to such a grave degree that this new relationship will take a level of intentional intimacy that maybe, as we spoke to, wasn't available to them before. They didn't know it was possible. But wow, it's got to be in place now. Right. And, you know, like one of the things that happens in a relationship that can break it down is people get caught in their cycle. I'll give an example. So you come home late. I get upset and cry. You get mad and go into the bedroom and slam the door. I cry harder. I mean, that kind of cycle where people are caught in actions that are separating them because they don't know how to talk about their feelings and they, or they don't know how to hear the other person's feelings and then they don't know how to verbalize their needs, which is, you know, I feel like you don't think about me when I was, you know, I was slaving away for an hour cooking dinner and I felt like you just forgot about me. And that makes me feel like I'm not important to you and I love you and I need to be important to you. I need to know that I'm important to you because people can't drop down to that level. They get caught in, I'm so angry that you didn't show up. So there's education that has to happen around how do I first identify what my deep needs are and then how do I talk about them so that my partner can hear them and we can start having a real conversation. Yeah. And I'm thinking of the scenario you described, the person who came home late may have been working extra hours to get extra money to pay some bills. So they're coming from a perspective of I'm coming home late because I love you so much. I don't want us to have financial stress, but they're missing each other. And I'm sure you see a lot of that yeah. with couples where they're actually both doing the thing that they think will best support the marriage and the family. And yet they're missing each other and caught in that cycle that you described. Right. And so what's happening, and that's exactly right. And what happens with that is, so let's suppose the, we'll make it traditional. The woman was home cooking dinner and the man was working late. Of course, it could obviously be the other way. Right. Or it could be two men, two women, whatever. But let's suppose that they have wounds. So the person who is staying home cooking dinner Maybe that person has a wound where she works really, really hard to show someone she loves them and she's missed. She doesn't get the acknowledgement. And that goes back to childhood. Mm -hmm. So that's a red hot trigger for that person. And that person will, when that scenario gets triggered, will have intense feelings. And let's suppose the person who worked late because that person wanted to, you know, wants to provide. That person feels like, nobody sees what I'm doing. Yeah. And that goes back to childhood. Again, another red hot issue. And yeah. so they have these wounds that they don't, they haven't explored with each other. They haven't talked about, well, this is what my history is. And this is why I react so strongly. And this is what this means. They haven't had that conversation 
at all or enough times to really start developing perspective on what's going on between them. It strikes me as so absolutely bizarre that we expect people to take a booklet home and study up on how to drive a car. You take a test, but the most important relationship in your life, no one prepares you for unless you've taken some interpersonal relationship class in college. Who does? I mean, you've read your self-help books or you've done some therapy, but the vast majority of people, if they're not into that literature and that genre, they just step into marriage and believe that their best intentions and the passion they feel is going to carry them through. And my goodness, all the stuff you speak to, it's in depth. You you need to have some awareness that you, how would you have unless you'd gone through some structured approach to gathering that information about yourself and about relationships and about other people. Right. That's why I wrote Weconcile, which is a yeah. you know, relationship restoration system, which is education. It's like we've never educated. We learn by osmosis growing up in our family. Right. And if we grew up in a family with, you know, not good communication skills or violence or addiction or whatever could have happened, or just not, not um, talking about feelings that often lead, not always, but often leaves a person with uh, relationship difficulties because they, nobody's taught them. How do you have a good relationship? Yeah. No one's taught them. And especially if the osmosis has been not so, not such a stellar model, then everything that you've internalized and observed has not been a template for success. And that it's rampant. And of course, that's why we do the work we do and why we share what we share. You know, another thing that struck me as you were giving the scenario is giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And I think that that's something that it sounds very simple, but can really go the distance with these sorts of situations. It's something I try to implement in my marriage, just assuming that we're on the same team. So if something feels like, wow, why did he do that? That didn't feel like he was on my side. Trying to look at it, well, wait, from his vantage point, maybe there was, maybe that gesture actually was for my benefit and our benefit as a couple. Right. So one of the things that you know is interesting about that is our brains privilege danger. Mm, true. Because we're set up for survival. Yes. So this carries through into relationships. So when something happens that appears scary or alarming, we go into fear and alarm and suspicion as opposed, obviously not everyone does, but we go into that place instead of, oh, I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation for this, or oh, we'll talk about it later and figure it out. The go-to place is, oh my God, something terrible just happened and I'm freaked out. And that person did something. We privileged the suspicion and the danger and that's built into our our wiring. That's such an excellent point. You're right. We are hardwired for survival to detect and notice and then respond to, and not even really respond, but more react to anything that feels threatening. And when someone does something that on the surface appears to be out of step with protecting us in the relationship, absolutely, we're going to see red and react as opposed to be thoughtful, take a moment, take a deep breath. And so, of course, so much of what I'm sure you do and the work that I do and that I talk to my community about is to be savvy enough cognitively to be able to respond as opposed to react. That's a big distinction. We use those words interchangeably often, but it's very big distinction. Yeah. The limbic, the reptilian brain alarm and the the limbic system with the emotions and the cognitive part of the brain needs to be developed enough or have enough practice and education that there can be a pause and the other brains don't take over. 
So well put and so useful, like you said, for not just this domain, but for any domain. I mean, a work conflict or a friendship trouble. Getting back to those who've been in a situation of infidelity, then that brain has already shown that, hey, I was right. See, last time that I thought something was up and I was felt threatened and I was worried that our relationship was on the rocks. In fact, he was out there cheating on me. So how do we now teach someone's brain to settle down and really rebuild that trust? Right. Okay. So that's obviously a process, not an event. Right. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) uh, I'll just take an example of a couple that I worked with a while ago. He was the withdrawer. He, you know, really pulled away from the relationship and she pursued in a very loud, angry, overwhelming way, overwhelming to him, probably overwhelming to a lot of people. And they had initial issues that set this whole thing in motion, but they had a pattern where she was, she pursued with anger and he withdrew with passivity and duplicity. And the process of untangling that, and this is, this is a couple that there was infidelity, although it wasn't known right away. It was suspected. I didn't know it right away either. And there were also addiction issues. So it was a really complex uh, situation. And the work with them was getting her to slow down mm-hmm. and get in touch with other feelings, her desperation, her abandonment, not just her anger and fury, but under that was this huge layer of why aren't I lovable? And why does he keep doing this to me? And this is so painful. She had to slow down and get into that. And he had to hear it. And he had to eventually, and he did, and he came in closer as a result. And what he had to unearth was, I don't know if I'm good enough for her. I don't know if I can keep her happy. I don't know if I can do this. And that was the big underlying emotional piece that had to get uncovered and talked about. And in that process, they started connecting more. And as they connected more, they were more available to each other. And as they were more available to each other, the trust could build. Okay. So many thoughts about that one. As you mentioned the, their personal dynamics that they brought to the marriage, the wife had this desperation. Her fundamental fear was, I'm not lovable. Why am I not lovable enough? Right. His fundamental fear was, I don't know if I'm good enough for her. Which which wasn't conscious. No, yeah, no, 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 of course. Yeah, no, excellent point to bring up for sure. And then through their actions, they unwittingly, subconsciously created the exact scenario they most feared. Right. She created a scenario with her desperation and her coming at him to where he pulled back passively and then a passive aggressive move with the affair, which then confirmed, see, I'm not lovable. He cheated on me. And he self-sabotaged with, yes, I'm not good enough for her because I'm a cheat and I'm a liar and I'm a no good husband. Right. Exactly. So the unconscious reality got created where they could see it and live it and work on it. That's like psychodynamic Freudian stuff going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love how you frame it though. Because I look at that and I go, dang, that is really tragic. And you said, which I love, they created it into reality so they could work on it. That's a positive spin. Now it's tangible. Now it's out here. Now we can work on it. Now we can become more available. Through this crisis, through this breakdown and this pain, we are going to learn to actually become available to each other so that she can learn that she is in fact lovable and he can learn that he is in fact good enough for her. Exactly. Yep. 
That's the beautiful part of the work you do, although so much mess. It is. You have to wade through the mess. It's like taking a, a marathon. You know, the, sometimes you're going uphill, it's rocky, you need water, you feel like you're going to die. And other times you're, you know, in an oasis and the breezes. I mean, sometimes you have to go up the mountain to get to the oasis. Yeah. And I think that's so often, that's so often in all realms of relationships. So I appreciate, again, your positive spin on that, because I think also what you would provide with clients you work with is hope when they are quite sure that hope is now not available for them as a couple and probably even individually. Right. I remember really early, early on in my training, one of my supervisors said that, and this really stuck with me, she said, they don't have any hope. You're the one holding the hope for them. Mm because they can't hold it themselves. And that was really such a beautiful thing to hear early, you know, when I was just, when I was still an intern Mm. to know that, you know, someone's got to hold the hope because these people might've gone through so much they can't. Yeah. Oh, that's beautifully stated. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram where I post original quotes, infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my love smarter, not harder IGTVs. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. Now, what if one person wants to work on the relationship, but the other is done and they're pretty much being dragged into a session and they've already emotionally checked out? Right. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> yes. So, um, so that's actually fairly common, I think. And ultimately, it's a really difficult situation. It depends on the health of the person who doesn't want to work on the relationship. Because sometimes there's people who don't want to work on a relationship, but they're pretty healthy. But for whatever reason, they just, they don't understand that therapy is good or something. Sure. I don't quite get it. But if you're in a relationship and the partner's not willing to work on it, you can do a lot of work yourself. You can work on your reactions. You can work on getting in touch with your feelings. You can get work on expressing, you know, and it, depending on the, uh, how your, the partner responds is how satisfying this will or won't be. I mean, it's like someone who's in Al-Anon, they might be with an alcoholic or a drug user, and they're working on themselves and they're finding happiness for themselves, despite the fact that their partner has a serious problem and is not fully available. And that's the compromise. I can make myself a lot better. I can improve. I can find happiness in other parts of my life, but I will not necessarily be able to make this partner be emotionally available to me and accessible and responsive the way I desire. And it's a choice. Do I choose to live with that? Or at some point, do I say, I need more and I'm moving on? And I'm thinking maybe in that scenario, sometimes the person who's checked out emotionally is Mm -hmm. staying physically present in the relationship because of the children or because they're tied together financially, something like that. Otherwise, my question would be, well, why haven't they taken off? Right. So security, yeah, which, you know, is connected to financial. Certainly lots of couples stay together because they have children and put up with things that they'd rather not put up with, or, or they feel like they don't have any 
way to influence their partner to be more available to them, or they can't get past the resentment or the fighting or whatever's going on, but they're still together either because I can think of many situations where someone stayed in because they had kids or financial necessity. For sure. And so then you take the opportunity to say, okay, well, I'm going to work on myself. I have this time. Yeah, my relationship isn't the most satisfying part of my life, but I have other parts of my life and I'm going to work on those because I can, and I'm powerless over this other area. Yeah. You mentioned Al-Anon. And then the last statement you said makes me think of the serenity prayer, right? Yeah. So it it speaks to this as well. Right. Let me control what I can in my life. Let me work on myself. Let me find fulfillment in the other roles and responsibilities of my life. And when someone wants that other person to work on things, but he, she won't, I guess you work on yourself and try to create as fulfilling a life as you can and hope for the best. Hope maybe they'll come around at some point. But I'm sure sometimes people just phone it in until the kids are out of the house and that sort of thing. Right. The last kid leaves the house and the divorce happens. Yeah. Extremely common. Mm-hmm. And it's sad because, you know, I mean, maybe maybe there is something that's an irreconcilable difference, but maybe not. Maybe some of these couples could have worked it out. Yeah, I think about the work that you do. And of course, I don't know if you do seminars and retreats and that sort of thing, but I know that those can be very powerful experiences that can absolutely get couples to rekindle that fire and excitement and enthusiasm for each other without going through that valley of infidelity. Right. I've, I've, done, I've taken a few of those myself, basically to learn. I haven't run a workshop group of that kind at this point. So there's a plus and a minus. The plus is obviously you get this experience of rekindling, which is wonderful. The minus is you can't develop those tools in in a weekend. Mm. So you have to find a way to support the spark with development of tools after the workshop. Yes, indeed. Follow up. I'm not sure how folks who do those sorts of retreats do the follow up, but that seems very important to get that sustainability in place. Yeah, I, I know that Sue Johnson's um, emotionally focused therapy. She does a lot of research and she did research on, you know, what happens to the couples that do her hold me tight. I think it's a three-day workshop. Well, they report great success initially, but eight weeks later, they're back to where they were. Right. Because there isn't enough follow-up to hold in place the inspiration and feelings they experience. And that goes to same thing. You fall in love, but do you have the tools to sustain that love. That mountaintop experience, you're not going to be able to stay there. So in order to approximate that high that you felt during that retreat, you have to get some of the other tools and other strategies in place that need to become habitual. They need to become part of the routine, not just that special retreat awakening we had. There's got to be the brass tacks throughout your day-to-day existence. Jennifer, you talk about a a two-person system. Can you explain that and how that relates to couples and marriage? So if you're in a relationship, let's just say you're in a relationship with a narcissist. That means you're in a one-person system because someone whose character structure is narcissistic means they live in a one-person world. Everything around them is a reflection of them or on them. It isn't like there's two people who can see each other and hear each other. And this is, you know, when you run into really tough couples, often there's a characterological problem like that in one of the one or both parties where they both are, one or both is in a one person system and there isn't room for two people. 
to have a real relationship, you need two different people that build a bridge, not the merging of two people into one viewpoint, one perspective, or one person. That's not a relationship. That's a one-person system. A two-person system means I have my voice and my feelings, you have your voice and your feelings, and we engage in the field between us and have room for both of those. That model is so clarifying. I speak to this. I did a post on Instagram recently where I did like a Venn diagram with two circles and showed what you described, the one-person system, whether it's from a personality disorder or from enmeshment. And of course, then the idea is you're going to meet all my needs and you're all I need and we can never have differing opinions and so forth. So I love this two-person system and the imagery of a bridge that's built And that relationship is that bridge and it can be super strong because you've got two strong anchors on either side of the bridge. That individual system is strong in and of itself. And then the two-person system is extra strong because of the strength of the individuals. Right. There's a, she's, she's a Mago trained Heidi Yumi. She does workshops around the world for uh, couples and she, her terminology is inviting your partner across the bridge into your world. So one of her workshops is teaching people to invite their partner into their world so they can share their world with their partner and vice versa. But it's a nice piece of imagery she uses. It is. I love the invitation. I love that word. It made me smile when you said that that, uh, that imagery. It brought a smile to my face. I love that. It's so welcoming. It's so, you know, Gottman's, they talk about the bid for attention, right? So it's this, it's not right. that he has to bid for my attention. I'm saying, Hey, I'm over here. Come, come over the bridge. Right. Exactly. I'm inviting you. Will you accept my invitation? Because it's an honor to be invited into someone else's world. Mm. And that we miss that, Mm. that understanding. It's an honor that I'm sharing my world with you and vice versa. And to keep that, hold to that and keep that energy very salient in the relationship because the day-to-day, we start taking one another for granted. It's impossible not to, unless we're super intentional. All of those things that are like, when people are, you know, see things so differently or have such different desires, that comes in and sort of, you know, knocks all the, hmm. the beauty out because you get caught in the struggle of that. It's so true. And it's, it's so worth it, though. <laughs> it's so worth it huh? to keep that invitation imagery, that invitation, energy even, and to recognize it is an honor. And when we cherish one another that way, I'm sure that that in and of itself can be a preventative measure. I'm thinking of many of my listeners are single and are in the throes of the dating scene. What sorts of advice do you have for single people as they're looking now, maybe they're in a relationship and they want to make sure they a fair proof, so to speak, their relationship, or even a step before that, what should they be looking for to try to, I mean, there's no guarantees, but try to prevent themselves from finding themselves in a relationship with someone who is prone to stray and to betray? Oh, that's a good question. Okay. So (laughs) yeah, uh, there's a lot there, I'm sure. (laughs) Some of it can't be prevented because life is in front of you, what you need to learn generally. However, the more therapy you've had, the more you've read, the more you've considered, the better off you are. I am not to self-promote, but I did write a book called The Magic Cake, The Seven Ingredients of a Relationship-Ready Person. And it's for singles 
who want to get ready for a relationship themselves and want to know what they're looking for in their partner. And it specifically addresses qualities like safety, accountability, empowerment, compassion, vulnerability, and insight. And in other words, what is their relationship to each of those qualities? And if they're dating someone, what is that person's relationship to each of those qualities? You know, when we fall in love, it's all, it's, you know, oxytocin and all these different chemicals that come through our bodies. And it isn't like, I know this person is trustworthy or, or it's like, this person seems like a good person. This person has a job and, you know, is nice to his niece. And, but it isn't, you don't know who the person is until there's challenges and you see how they respond to those challenges. So you actually want to think about, you know, and this is a problematic because the in love feeling is so strong. It overrides everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The emotions are so powerful. They can override our, our smarts. I do a IGTV series where I receive questions and I answer them on Instagram and I call it love smarter, not harder, because if we let those emotions completely carry us away from our brain, then we end up oftentimes in a very hard situation. It was very, maybe it felt euphoric for the first couple months, but we weren't bringing along, you know, I've heard it put this way, you know, follow your heart, but bring your head with you. <laughs> and we need to do that in love for sure. So yeah, no need right. to apologize. This is all about self-promotion. Whatever okay. resources you have for my community, please talk about them. So it's called Magic Cake. It's the magic cake, the seven ingredients of a relationship ready person by me. It's an older book I wrote, but it's short, really short, easy read, but it really helps you look at, you know, where, how you're situated in terms of your, are you ready for your relationship? And what do you, do you have your antennas out for what you're looking for? Are you thinking about these things when you're dating? I think it's uh, useful for people. Yeah, it sounds like a great resource. And I'm always looking for those sorts of tools. And and I speak a lot to the notion of wanting to be in a relationship, but not needing to be in a relationship. And just by virtue yeah. of that distinction, which is really profound, you set yourself up to be a little bit more objective. When you don't need somebody, you can right. enjoy them. Like you spoke to, you can enjoy getting to know them. You can invite them over to your side of things, but you're not coming at it from, as you spoke to with the client you talked about, it's not this desperation. It's not, I need you to complete me. I need you to define me. I need you to validate me. Right. And so that allows us to look at those elements that you speak to in the magic cake and really be able to, even when you're falling in love, be a little bit objective. Let me watch and see. Let me take my own emotional pulse. Let me observe this person for who he has shown him to be and not put on my romanticized glasses and see him for the person I want him to be and attribute to him things I hope he has. And that's a lot. It just takes time. You can't rush that process. Yeah. And the other thing about that is if you're someone who's been, you know, let's suppose you had a childhood that was not very affectionate and you perhaps you, emotionally, there's a part of you that's starving. Yeah. When you come from that kind of past, you are going to grab onto, you're not going to have as much objectivity because you, the need to be connected is, is so strong when you've come from a past where you have some degree of emotional starvation. That's another reason why I'm a huge advocate for therapy. I mean, if you come from that, you want to start working that out before you're getting married by the time you get married, you want to have worked through enough of that stuff that you do a better pick. It's so important. And we see the fallout when that's not in place. It's it's 
so much heartache and so much pain. And I know you see it in your office all the time. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The Perfector takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. So what are some of the top problematic concerns that you see with couples or red flags that start waving and they may not be paying attention to and they should in order to nip these sorts of things in the bud before they overwhelm the relationship and then can lead to a betrayal or breakdown? Okay. Uh, Two things popped into my mind. So sometimes people are really turned on, attracted to people who are very possessive. Mm-hmm. I feel loved because this person is possessive. Right. That's a huge red flag because uh, often that possessive person ends up being very controlling and jealous. So, you know, when you need that possessive person, because it makes you feel like the person really wants you and is consumed by you, it's, you have to be careful Sometimes that what comes out of that is, you know, a person who's deeply insecure and is going to be controlling and jealous. And I mean, that's where I've seen things, you know, start that way and end up in more dangerous areas. So you have to look at what, so that's one thing that that I would call a a bit of a red flag to be Mm -hmm. cautious of. The other thing is, and this is not nearly as red a flag, call it a yellow flag. There's a lot of People, and this is somewhat gender-based, I hate to say that, but for whatever reason, men are not quite as facile in their connecting with their feelings. Mm-hmm. And they just have different brains. Women, they're better at other things. We're all better at different things. So it's not to put anyone down. But men often are, you know, there's the case of it's like a talking head, but there's no connection to what's below the, the head in terms of feeling. And that needs to be developed. You want a person who has a developed feeling repertoire uh, or is willing to develop it. And another thing that's connected to this is let's suppose you run into dating someone and you run into some issues pretty quickly, which can happen. And you decide you really like this person and you want to keep this relationship. And you say, well, would you do a couple of sessions of therapy with me so we can sort this thing out? And the person says, absolutely not. Hmm. Well, to me, that's a huge red flag because it, it could easily mean that you're going to run into problems and this person is not going to be willing to get any help. You want someone who's like, yeah, we can talk about our stuff with someone and see if we can do this better. You want that attitude. Like, yeah, teamwork, support. We we can do this. I mean, I don't understand this thing of, no, we we can't look at this stuff. I mean, who's kidding who? This stuff is there. (laughs) Well, and wouldn't it be wonderful? My brother works with couples and he does now have some that are dating and he specializes in premarital and then marital therapy, but he's got some pre-premarital that come in. And that's so wonderful to start assessing early on before you even propose and there's a ring and there's a date and there's deposits down. 
start dealing with these issues before you even get to that point. And then I think the hardest thing for pre-premarital or premarital is to be able to be very honest. Wow, we learned in therapy, I love you, you love me, but we're just not a match for forever. And that is okay, but the rejection and the all the expectations and the hopes that have been put into the relationship sometimes override that good sense of, you know what, two really great people don't always make a great relationship. Right. And this is why people should talk about their dreams and their goals Mm. and their meaning making parts of their lives. What gives my life meaning beyond a relationship? Because sometimes there's, you know, what if one person, his ideal life is traveling across the world for, you know, 10 months out of the year. And the other person wants, you know, to live in a little room and do Zoom conferences. I mean, you know, it's, the goals have to, there has to be some harmony between the visions that the two people have and that hopefully there's a way those two visions support each other because that really makes a solid relationship when both people's visions are harmonious for their purpose as a couple. Yeah, because so much of a happy marriage is just wanting the same things from life. So you don't fight over those big old, we're going to travel or no, we're going to stay at home and Zoom. You don't, because you both want those same, those same core values, those same, even more than the core values, which of course are profoundly important. But on top of that, just the way, how do we want to do life? Little things. So my husband and I are super social, both of us. So if I'm home and he ran into somebody at the store and said, why don't you come over and we'll have a cocktail on the veranda? He knows that I'm like, cool. Like, But some people, they'd be like, what? I had a plan for that. I'm just, I'm more spontaneous. Plans getting disrupted doesn't freak me out. Right. That just makes it easier. Whereas other right. two great people who had great love for each other, they could end up in big fights about things like that. So right. I, it's so important to yeah. recognize that all the similarities, and this of course is supported by the research, all the similarities, common core values, common ways of wanting to do life, the more you have as a couple, and my marital therapy class, the professor talked about that is money in the bank. And it's just an easy way. You don't have to take any deposits from that, from the bank account or take any withdrawals rather from the bank account because you just have the same ways of doing life. Yeah. And like even deeper, like, or further, I should say is let's suppose someone wants to become an astrologer and the other person is like, you believe in that stuff? Yeah, right. I mean, or what if someone wants to go back to grad school and the other person's like, I'm not supporting you through grad school. I want to save money. I mean, so needing to know that each person wants the best for their partner mm-hmm. fits into this too. Because there's so many places where someone's needs might not work with the other person's needs. And both needs are valid and both needs are fine. That's the problem is sometimes when there's disparity there, then the tendency is to try to change the person or try to minimize, well, the way you want to do life isn't as good as the way I want to do life. And then that becomes demeaning and yeah, and painful. Right. So yeah. Jennifer, let's wrap up on a positive note though. And okay. let's talk about some of the best ways to achieve a fulfilling relationship. We've spoken to this throughout the hour, but do you have any kind of parting words for achieving a fulfilling relationship? And maybe specifically, since that was the, the theme of the podcast episode, maybe specifically to achieving a fulfilling relationship post-betrayal. Right. So once you've worked through the 
oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I didn't mean to put you through this kind of pain. And I can't believe I put you through this kind of pain. And yes, I've cut off contact with that person. I will never speak to that person again. And I'm okay if you read my emails and my phone, because I need you to know that I'm going to be transparent so you can trust me. And the other person says, okay, I see that you're trying and I do want to forgive you and I am willing to keep going forward. And I hopefully we can keep, you know, hopefully I can at some point really let go of this. Although obviously I'm terrified right now and can't. Once you get through that stage, mm-hmm. they're going to be developing, basically they're going to be developing the ability to be accessible to each other. So If one of them has an emotional need, that person can say, hey, I really need to talk to you right now. The other person will be responsive. Yes, I'm available. I'm here. And the two of them will be able to engage with each other emotionally. So once they've gotten through the the horror part and they're into the, the place where they're trying to create a new relationship, which they've been doing in the whole process, but they're really focused on making sure that they're both available to each other emotionally. So the relationship has a solid emotional base and they both feel safe emotionally with each other. And that's the basis of what allows the relationship to go forward. Like I feel safe with you now. I feel like you care about me and love me and vice versa. That's what the focus is on. It's on being able to both be there and want to be there and be supportive of each other's emotional needs. Mm-hmm. And that safety that has yeah. been violated and then right. can be rebuilt. Right. And from your experience, does the person who was betrayed, are they ever able to years later look back and I'm sure the intensity becomes less and less, but are they ever able to look back and go, man, I wouldn't have planned it that way, but that really was the catalyst for us to have this more deep, more beautiful, more right. open, accessible relationship or does it always sting pretty bad? Does not always stay pretty bad. I know a couple and before they were married, he had a one night stand. Basically it wasn't really a full on affair because he was terrified of how close he was with this person he was in love with. So obviously it was a self-sabotaging situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the tsunami that came out of that was enormous. But what it created was he decided to, he had swore he'd never marry again. He had been in an unhappy marriage and divorced and they married and they're happy, very, very happy. But it was the process. (laughs) And I don't know if they would have gotten married if that hadn't happened. I mean, it really unearthed so much stuff that had to be opened up. It was like a volcano. All the stuff came spewing out that had to be dealt with and he was going to lose her. Yeah, She was going to walk and he realized that. And so he decided he could marry again. And that's so tough because in the context of a therapist's office, when they're working with you and you're with both of them, you can see that he was self-sabotaging. If someone hit me up on a question on Instagram and said, I'm engaged and he had a one night stand, the information I have, I'm thinking, wow, people's future behavior is best predicted by their past behavior. I wouldn't recommend she move forward. So it's a great thing that they were able to both be there in front of you so that you could really suss out what was going on. And that's tough because on the surface, I think many people would say, go, bye. (laughs) This This is not a good bet. 
that was my, you know, internal feeling. Okay, this isn't going to work. But actually, it was the catalyst that needed to happen. And it created a much deeper understanding. He became so much more aware of how vulnerable she was. And because of the way this rocked her and he, and she became so much more aware of, you know, how scared he was. It opened up a lot. Mm -hmm. And again, another silver lining, another way to take something that feels tragic and irreparable and find something really beautiful and strong and stronger because of it. Right. So thank you for sharing your wisdom and these examples from those you've worked with. And Jennifer, let everyone know where to find you. I know you mentioned your book, The Magic Cake, and you have a program called We Conciled. Yeah. So I, We Conciled is an educational system for couples. Right now, it's a broad system that ta- that w- walks people through the steps and stages. You know, So the first, the first uh, level or chapter would be about how do we look at, let's look at our, all our goals. Let's look, let's look at what's working and not working. It's all the assessment. Who are we, you know, and, and then it walks them through each thing they need to know to, to begin to get closer. What, what is their cycle? What, their, what is their, atta- what do they know about attachment and where are their attachment issues? So anyway, it's just a big educational system. We'll, we'll probably at some point be doing more it, focusing on, you know, to an individual problem, pick an individual problem to solve, as opposed to let's make ourselves both into whole people who can have a real relationship, which is what it is right now. So that's at WeConsult.com. On my blog, blog blog.WeConsult.com, I do tons of writing on relationships to help people. There's a quiz. You go to WeConsult.com slash quiz. You can take a relationship quality quiz, which can get you a, a small discount off of level one and also get you information about the emotional safety and satisfaction of your relationship. And then The Magic Cake, there's a couple books out there named The Magic Cake. Mine is the one, obviously, under my name, Jennifer Lear. Any social media presence we should know about? Instagram is Weconcile, so slash Weconcile. Do a lot of quotes on there. And Facebook, Weconcile. The Facebook is also Weconcile. There's a big Pinterest, also under Weconcile. And, you know, I also have my personal website, jenniferlearmft.com, which I have a personal blog with personal writing about my own story and how I've, you know, changed and grown through the events of my life and a healing tips blog, which is less for couples and more for just individual learning and healing. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all those resources with us and for sharing your time today in the program. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) It was fun. The love and life hack for this week is therapy works, even in cases of infidelity and betrayal. The research shows and Jennifer can attest to through her clinical practice, many couples can move forward and find happiness and marital satisfaction that actually is the same as other couples who haven't experienced a betrayal. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. As always, I so appreciate you spending this hour with me. I'd love to connect with you further via my newsletter. I send one out every month or so, just keeping you informed of what's going on in the love and life community. You can sign up on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And until next time, make it a great week.
Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril. <laughs>